He looks determined without being ruthless. Something heroic in his manner. There's a courage about him. Doesn't look like a killer. Comes across so calm. Acts like he has a dream. Full of passion. You don't trust me, huh? Well, you know why. I do. We're not supposed to trust anyone in our profession anyway. Peace, 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 and welcome to The Rematch, which is part of the BasketballNews.com podcast network. On The Rematch, you'll hear in-depth interviews with notable names from all walks of life. Because sometimes the media just doesn't get it right. The Rematch is that second opportunity to clarify, put things in proper context, correct fake news or misreported controversy. The media still exists as the most powerful entity on earth because they control the minds of the masses. I'm Atan Thomas, and the full truth is what we are aiming to catch. Many media stories omit details that would dilute their clickbait roar, and that's why there's a need for the rematch. Today on The Rematch, I had an in-depth conversation with Penny Hardaway. We discussed how getting shot in the foot in high school served as his wake-up call, his passion for coaching, the NCAA ruling eventual number two pick James Wiseman ineligible, beating Michael Jordan in the playoffs, getting swept by Hakeem Olajuwon in the finals, how the media pit him and Shaq against each other in Orlando, how trying to play through injuries ruined his career, and much more. This was a fantastic interview. Hope you enjoy. Penny Hardaway, how you doing, sir? I'm doing good, my man. How are you? Man, I appreciate you coming on the rematch. Uh, basketballnews.com and Fly TV. Um, big fan of yours. There's a whole lot I want to talk to you about. First of all, how's your health? That, that, that's the first thing you have to ask now. How's your health? How's the health of everybody around you, your team, your family now in this in this COVID situation? Yeah, for me, first of all, I'm healthy, man. You know, all the knee injuries that I had in the past, that physical physical uh, pounding every day, was a, they took a toll on me. But as of now, I'm feeling great, um, right. in great shape. And uh, we work out every day. Uh, being a being a coach, you have the the pleasure of having your own weight room and things of that nature. So we right. work out every day. As far as the COVID situation, man, I've had a couple friends that have passed away from COVID. Mm. My immediate family, nothing has happened to. Thank God for that. But it's serious out here, man. You got to stay safe. Uh, right. My players, about nine players have had COVID. It was oh, early wow. on, though, like not during the season, but early on, like before the season started. And we've had to go through that wave. So it's real, man. Guys have to really be careful. You have to wear your mask. You have to wash your hands. Everything that they're saying is so true. Wow. You said nine players, nine different players? Yep. yep. So, how, so how do you, you know, when I asked, it's, it's interesting. I just had my old coach, um, uh, Jim Beheim on, and we talked about COVID. And how? what is the system that you all have? Because I was learning that every college has their own system. I thought there was one universal COVID system for all the NCAA, but that's not how it is, right? No, we test uh, every other day. And some okay. people test like once a week. And the problem that we were having back in April, May, June was the kids were still going out playing pickup ball. Uh, they were still going out playing, even though we were in a COVID crisis, they were still getting together with their buddies and going to play ball. Right. And that's how they were getting it way before the season started. Nothing has really happened during the season at all. Okay. But 
before the season started, we did have some, you know, some some situations. And um, it's just, man, the kids weren't taking it. They were taking it for granted and weren't taking it seriously. Because I remember when it first came out, they were saying if you were under the age of 21 or right. 21, that it was hard for you to get it. It was only people with health problems. And that wasn't yeah. that wasn't true at all. That was but that's the rumor that was. That. That was Trump hey, that saying was, that. Let's right. be honest. Trump said that. <laughs> but that's that's the that's the rumor that was out there. So the kids felt like that they could go and do whatever they wanted to do. Oh, yeah, and yeah. that's what was happening, man. And they were um oh. they were not being smart. But since the season has started, we have a um our own bubble in place. Okay. And and we we really don't do anything outside of what needs to be done and stand in the bubble. That's it. That's all we do. Now, see, that makes sense, a bubble type of a situation. A lot of places, they don't have that. So I don't know how it logically can work. Um, but in a bubble situation where you keep all the all the guys there, you know what I mean, and you 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 know where they are, they don't leave any place, you're, you know what I mean, and you keep everybody yeah. out, then that's something that can work, and that's what y'all have. Yeah, basically, we go. they go to the dorm, and they come to the gym. They go get mm. something to eat, they wear their masks, and then they're back. They really believe now that COVID is real right. and that they need to stay. And then we went we went to a tournament uh, in uh, South Dakota and we had to test every other day. We were going to our hotel room, to the COVID testing, to our conference room where we had to meet to watch film and grab something to eat, and to the, the arena where we're gonna play and back into our rooms. No one was in the lobby just hanging out. Mm. It was just really strict and that's the same thing that we try to do here. Okay, well that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Well, all right, before I get into the, the, the stuff with, you know, I, I wanna ask you, about your coaching um and i also want to ask you about young penny so i want to go all the way back i, I want you okay. to take me through i mean because now i coach aau you know i got my, my shirt on fbcg dynamic disciples shout out to them and okay. you know everything that i do now is always a lesson for them you know as when you get old you're like he's combustible or something everything is like a story and a lesson right and so yeah. I, I want to go back to young penny growing up in memphis and, you know, yeah, you averaged like 36 your senior year, you know, 10 rebounds. Uh -huh. I saw the stats. He was killing. Um, you know, and you were putting work in every night, like putting on a show, like a high school phenom. But you also was getting involved in things that could have redirected your entire path. And yeah, I, I want you to talk about that element a little bit and what you, what you learned from it. Yeah, of course, we're older now, so reflecting. But then... You could have made some decisions where we never even knew about Penny. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, you know, uh, a lot of people might know, might not know. When I when I was uh, five years old, my, my mom left and left me with mm -hmm. my grandmother and my dad. I had never met my dad. So mm -hmm. I grew up in a neighborhood that was really rough, really tough. My grandmother did an excellent job uh, keeping it the, the disciplinary actions and the situations until I got about 14 and my mother moved back. Okay. My mother moved back to Memphis. Her and I got an apartment by ourselves. And at the time, my mother was working a night job, and it just kind of left me to, to roam the city, kind of. If you, you know, it wasn't no, it wasn't the same discipline that I had in my grandmother's home. Mm -hmm. So I kind of ventured out, and in my neighborhood, it was gangs. It was, it was so much drugs. It was so many things going on, and I still had to balance all of that and be the best basketball player that I could be, which I ended up being the best player in the country. But mm -hmm. growing up in those adverse situations, man, I got into a couple of situations that could have derailed my career. You know, right. I got I got shot at when I was in high school. Um, when I was a freshman in college, I was a prop 48. I got shot in the foot. It was, it was meant for my head, but I got, actually got shot in the foot. So wow. 
it was so much stuff that was going on back then because you thought the crowd that you were hanging around were your friends and uh, the guys that you were comfortable with. But, you know, it just wasn't it wasn't for me. And God just had a different path for me because I got into some situations when I was younger that could have I could have gotten killed and I could have had a career in the injury and you would have never heard of me. So, yeah, wow. the young me, I was 36 a game on the court, off the court. I wasn't a bad kid. It's just the people who you thought were your, were your friends were in different stuff. And then they created these different scenarios with other guys around the city that weren't good. And if you're associated with a certain person, then you're blending in with that with that mix up right. or with that energy, that negative energy from the next crowd or the next neighborhood. So it became a war. And when you go to war, nobody's safe. And I just became a part of that war. And I'm just blessed to be able to get out of that war for sure. I mean, what, what do you talk to your guys about how important it is about the company that they keep? Um, you know, it's something I say to my, my my guys all the time, something my mom always said to me, my grandmother always said to me, that you have to watch the company that you keep. And talk about how, you know, the company that you kept really, you know, because it wasn't necessarily that you were doing everything. It was just the people right. around you and you were with them, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the biggest thing when you're, a, when you're an athlete, and you can attest to this, the drug dealers and gangbangers, they draw to you. They mm -hmm. get fascinated by your talent. And they want to start giving you money. They want you to hang around them. And it's not like they're trying to put you in the middle of something. They're just, they want to be around your greatness right. when you're a basketball player. So what happens is these guys start to come around you and you're like, they're my friends. But what they're doing outside of when they're around you is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So they don't really know that they're putting you in jeopardy when they actually are. And you become what you're around. You start going out, you start going places that you wouldn't usually go to. Mm -hmm. And then things can happen. So you do guilty by association. If, if my friend went to rob a bank and then met up with me later and we were driving in the car, I'm going to jail too. Right. Because my association with that might be, are you a part of this? Until they figure out I'm not, I'm associated with it. And that's something that I had to tell my guys in middle school. I tried to tell my guys in high school. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't because they loved those guys so much mm -hmm. that it was like, I can't befriend them now. They right. need me. Right. And... You know, some make it out and some don't. Right, right. So so when you came out of um you came out of high school and you had to sit out your freshman year for academic reasons. And it was a prop forty eight. Like explain because may, may, maybe a lot of people don't know what prop forty eight is. So what what exactly happened with that? Uh prop forty eight was um when you don't pass the ACT or SAT, okay. uh, you don't get the, the passing score to uh to be eligible your freshman year. Mm -hmm. uh, I was so distracted my senior year, man. I had so much going on that I took the ACT for granted and never passed it, so I had to sit out my freshman year. That's what mm -hmm. that was. Wow, wow. So while, so while you're sitting out, that's when you got shot in the foot, right? Yeah, I was actually going to an area gym just to get some exercise. Pretty competitive uh, pickup ball game that happened on Sundays. A friend and myself went to the pickup ball pickup game with a cousin, and – when we left the, the, the pickup game, we went to my cousin's house to drop him off. And when we dropped him off, that's when all the mayhem hit. You know, it was a big thing going on back in the day where guys would travel from their neighborhood to the rival's neighborhood and go and try to rob or shoot or mm. whatever. It was just a big war going on. And we got caught up in the middle of that war. And when they drove off about 100 yards away, maybe even 50 yards away, they started shooting back to where we were. They could have actually shot in this point blank. But they drove off, and then when they drove off, maybe they thought about, you know, maybe we should have shot them, and they didn't. They started shooting when they drove off, and one of the bullets ricocheted off the ground and hit me in the foot. 
Wow. So talk about how that was your wake up moment. It had to have been your wake up moment. You know, getting a shot could yeah, wake anybody sure. up. And yeah, how no you had to change from there. And the reason why I'm going through all this is because a lot of guys, you know, they have to be able to hear and understand where they're associated with some people. And then they have to make a change. And sometimes the wake up moment is too late. You don't get a second chance. You were blessed yeah, enough to be able to get a second chance. Yeah, I have a friend that has a he has a line. He says, there's never a problem until there's a problem. You can hang with the bad guys and you're thinking that everything is good because you can go to the mall and grab sneakers or some gear or right. things of that nature when you're in high school with the neighborhood guys. But then as soon as a rival comes around or a rival gang comes around, then all of a sudden you're right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't learn my lesson until I actually got shot to go, hey, this could have taken my life. Right. And I had to kind of not disassociate myself, but I, I did distance myself, but, you know, still being, you know, through communication, through cell phone or through the phone, but not going out as much as I was because when I first went to the hospital, the bullet was lodged in the area of my foot that they didn't even know they were going to get the bullet out. Wow. And my foot was broken because it broke all my bones in my foot. It, it just pretty much fractured, I mean, broke every bone in my foot and then lodged in between uh, uh, two of my toes. And it was, it was, it was amazing, man. They told me that I wasn't going to be able to play basketball again. Like my foot was damaged that bad. Wow. And and that's when it really started to really get on, get really heavy on my mind that, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, basketball is, is all I have. So do you tell that story to your guys that you coach, like your AAU, when you was coaching AAU or even now coaching in college, because I, like I tell stories of mistakes that I made when I was younger and going up in high school and I was just by the grace of God that I'm even here right now. Do you tell them right. that that story? I've told my AAU team, I've told my high school team, and i told my middle school team. I haven't told my college team. Okay. But, you know, those were stories that I told the guys in my neighborhood because they were hanging around similar guys, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. Wow. Wow. Um, talk to me about your passion for coaching and where that developed. I want to go back to your 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 friend um, you played with, um, Desmond Weymouth, and yeah. how he pretty much got you into coaching AAU um, in the Memphis East Mustangs. Talk, talk to me about that story. Yeah, when I when I uh, retired from basketball, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Probably mm-hmm. some TNT work, some ESPN work, something on that on that level because I didn't want to just not be in the game. I still wanted to be in the game. And uh, when I got home, Desmond had just got diagnosed with um, colon cancer. And I went to the hospital to visit him. And when I went to the hospital to visit him, all he was talking about was his middle school team. Mm. He was like, man, I got a really good team. We're going to win the state championship this year. I was like, man, first of all, we have to get you healthy. They gave him 48 hours to live because it took him so long before he went and got diagnosed. He ignored it for months that he he wasn't feeling well. He wasn't telling anyone that he wasn't feeling well. He wow. thought that he could just take medicine and then it would just go away. And then it wow. just got to a point to where it shut him down and he was forced to go to the hospital and found out that he had stage four cancer. Wow. Wow. And that's what it was all along. And he was given 48 hours to live. So the doctor told me that I went in to see him. I was trying to keep his spirits up. And all he was mm-hmm. talking about was this middle school basketball team. And I was like, man, if we ever get to that, then we'll get to that. But right now I'm worried about your health. Right. Man, God God blessed him to come out of this situation with giving 48 hours to live and gave him another four years to live after that. And wow. we ended up coaching that middle school team together. Wow. And what happened was when he, when he had to keep going to chemotherapy, he was like, I'm too sick to coach the team after I leave my chemo sessions. Can you help me coach? And okay. that's how I got into coaching. 
on the days oh. that he was really sick and ill from chemo, I became the head coach. When he was able to be on the, the bench, I was uh kind of his assistant, but it got to a point where he was like, Man, you got it all to yourself. Like I can't I can't even do anything anymore. I'm too weak. My body's getting too weak. I can't do it. And he never missed a game. Mm. I looked down at the end of the bench and he'd be down there folded over and nobody could make him leave and go home and get rest after chemo. He'd just be at the end of the bench to let wow. the kids know I'm here for you guys. So that motivated me and made me feel like, man, if Des is in here fighting through chemo and he's on the bench and he doesn't even have the energy to talk, mm. then man, this, this is motivating. This is very, It was motivating to the kids because they didn't know exactly what he was going through. Right. He never really discussed what he was actually going through with the kids. They just knew he was sick. Wow. And, and you know, it's interesting. One, one of the things that I've, that I've seen and heard about you and heard from talking to other people is that you're one of the coaches that actually cares about the players. You know, there, oh, there yeah. are coaches that could care less about them. They just want to get W's. I mean, even started from middle school. Middle school, AAU, high school, they, they could care less about the player. You actually take an active role and making sure that they become um, young men and you take a role in their character and you have them. And that's what I really admire about you. Um, did that start immediately? Like as soon as you started uh, coaching, was it just, you know, like immediate or did it kind of take a little bit for you to develop and develop relationships with the whole younger generation that you don't even really necessarily know about? Yeah, no, first thanks for the uh, for the for the compliments, but it, it it's always been in my heart for my grandmother. Mm. You know, she was always a caring person about the neighborhood and caring about her neighbor and caring, caring, caring. So that's how I grew up. I grew up caring about people. And when I got with Dez and I saw that the kids were they were all over the place. They were right. they were um they were angry, they were hurt, they were upset, none of them had fathers in their lives. Maybe one kid had a father in their life, the mm. other kids had fathers either incarcerated or dead or just didn't want to have anything to do with them. So when I got into that, the compassion came easily because I was the same kid as they were, walking the same hallways, walking the same neighborhood, fighting and scrapping to try to get out. So I felt like I was an avenue and I had to be more than a coach. I had to be a counselor, I had to be a friend, I had to be a disciplinarian. I had to be all kinds of things for them to get them through everything that they were going through to keep them locked in and, uh, and being able to succeed. Wow. And you coached your son, too. Talk to me about that yeah. experience, because I coach my son as well. And it's a different experience. You know what I mean? Because you got to you got to be a little extra hard on him sometimes. So it doesn't look like, you know, there can't be no favoritism. And then you right. got but then you go back home and he's home with you. So how do, do you separate it or did y'all, you know, keep on coaching while you eating breakfast, while you eating dinner before you go to, you know, how, how did you navigate coaching your own son? First of all, it's tough coaching your own son because of the reasons that you mentioned you have to be you know fair all around all the way around the board but the one right. thing that i feel like dads do to their kids we're we're more harder on them than we are on the regular players they can't make the same them. mistakes as the other players because they're from us we want them right. to succeed and do so well yeah. and that's the unfair part so when i yeah. got to the point where i said you know what i'm going to treat him like i treat the other players i'm not going to go extra hard on him because i want to see him succeed yeah. I'm going to treat him like one of the players and then pull him to the side and say, hey, this is what I want you to do better. Don't. I was showing it outwardly because he wasn't getting it and I wanted him to get it so badly right. that I was too hard. Yeah. And I think a lot yeah. of fathers, they go through that, especially when they play professional no sports. You want to see your son succeed yeah. and, and, and do well right away. But once we got to the point after his senior year 
where uh-huh. I started saying, I'm going to treat him just like everyone else. Right. And I'm just going to give him the nuggets and get him in the gym. And everything kind of calmed down. And that made him feel a lot better about himself as well. But it's, that's a learning process because I had to go through those stages myself of being too hard on him. Then I had, okay, let me pull off on him. Maybe I'm, you know, doing a little bit too much. But I saw this one clip um, and it was a few years ago and it was of um, Colin Sexton um, talking ridiculous noise to your yep. son and just being yep. disrespectful to both of y'all, yep. really. And it was during a game, you were coaching and, you know, he was on the opposing team. And walk me through how you handled that situation. You know what I mean? And how your son had, and what you told your son. I mean, and you could just, you know, replay it for anybody who doesn't, isn't familiar with it. But I saw it. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, like, I, I, you know, I might have lost it. <laughs> yeah, well, we were playing Colin Sexton when he was in high school, Pebblebrook uh-huh. High School, in uh-huh. a tournament in Florida. They really didn't have a great team. And uh, we were beating up on them. They had a good team, but they didn't have a great team. And I understood who Colin was already because I had studied him enough to let him know, to let him know that um, that uh, I mean to understand who he was okay. as a person first, okay. and then what drove him as a player. I don't do think mean? he's a disrespectful. What I mean is he plays through emotion. Oh, he okay. plays. Emotion. That's how he gets himself gotcha. going. Gotcha. That's gotcha. how he kind of, you gotcha. know, kind of does the things that he needs to do right. to um. To, to get himself going. And then there's always a little disrespect in kids, not only because Jaden was my son, was mm-hmm. because he was a good, great player. He was looking down on my son. Basically like, your son sucks. Yeah. Because my son was a role player and he was a superstar. My oh, son was right. a superstar in his role because my son understands who he was. He was uh, a great role player. He did the things that Colin didn't appreciate. If okay. you couldn't get 30 a game, then Colin was saying that you suck. I got you. You know what I mean? Okay. That was not only just to my son. That was to any player that he thought that couldn't score 30 like him. Okay. So it was a learning experience not only for him, but for my son as well, because now my son is comfortable in his own skin right. with who he was. Right. And he wasn't caring about what Colin was saying, that he sucked. My thing to Colin was, my son is just a basketball player, and so are you. You guys are different. So mm-hmm. I wasn't mad at Colin for looking like he disrespected me. I know that's what gets him going. Okay, gotcha. You know what I mean? And I never looked at it as disrespect. Everyone else around me did. But if you know Colin, you know that that's just how he acts to just get himself going. I don't think he meant anything to me. That's between him and my son about he sucks and all that. My son understands how to handle his own business on the court. Right. But for me to the kid is, you know, don't look down on anybody because they're not getting 30 shots tonight. Right. And if my son got 30 shots tonight, he probably would have 30 points a game, but he's a role player now. Right, gotcha. That's what I was saying. So – Hopefully he learned from that. He yeah. understood, especially on the next level where he is now, what role players really mean to the game. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because role right. players are a huge part of what you do any on the next level as well. Yeah, you're right. And some people are comfortable with who they are. And my son is very comfortable with who he is. I looked at it as Colin not being as comfortable with who he was. Got you. Got you. That's a great point. I mean, in a moment, I probably wouldn't have had that level of wisdom. I probably would have, you right. know what I mean? But I... I understand everything you said. Now, I want to ask you about uh, James Wiseman and uh-huh. how good it felt for him to be the number one pick in the draft. And I, I saw you there with him, and everyone was smiling from ear to ear, and, you know, everybody was so happy. And I want to first talk about the the tremendous upside that he has. You know, I think he could be really special in the league yeah. moving forward. Yeah. 
Well, first to correct because we don't want to disrespect Anthony Edwards. He went second. Anthony Edwards. I'm in second. Yeah, I'm in second. It's I'm cool. We have to respect oh, Ant Man because I got a lot of love for that kid. No, Anthony's a true. Um, like all three yeah, no, of those yeah, he's guys that went one, two, and three. They are they are special. So they no disrespect to anybody. My bad. Slip of the tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. But um, James Wiseman is a kid that is a coach's dream because he's going to do exactly what you need him to do. He's mm -hmm. the type of kid that puts his ego to the side that comes to you during practice. What do I need to do better? Now, how many mm -hmm. kids do you know on that level come to you and say, hey, coach, what am I not doing? What could I be doing better? What am right. I doing good? Right. You know what I mean? At every water break, he's coming over and, and asking that. And then after practice, let's work on my weaknesses. Mm. That's what's next. And I know that he's he went to a blessed situation to go to a, a veteran team right. and a veteran organization that wants to win right away. Mm -hmm. uh, he's probably going to have his bumps and bruises. What he's not going to have is competition problems. He's going to okay. compete on a nightly basis. He's going to go out there and protect the rim. He's going to be dynamic. He's going to be fast. And he's ultimately going to be willing to do whatever they need him to do, man. And that's just a blessing altogether. That's great. You know, and and so you you all have, you have a long relationship with him. You, you've been um, his coach since high school, correct? Mm -hmm. And so you've yeah. had – talk to me about how you've seen him grow and mature from the time you coached him in high school to now. Yeah, when he first came to us, he definitely was not the same kid. Mm -hmm. He was uh, coming from a great private school, Innsworth High School. And, um, man, their campus is like Syracuse campus mm. on this high school. They had, like, I think they had like two or three gyms. So he came from a very spoiled situation okay. to a public school in a really rough neighborhood. Okay. So <laughs> what happened was it was a blessing for him to have that happen because they beat him up every day. Uh, his mom would tell me he would go home and be so frustrated that he would be crying because they kept knocking him down. They kept making him tough. And we worked on things that he wasn't comfortable working on when he first got there. Right. Which made him a monster because once he got out of that shell and became played more angry, played mm -hmm. more aggressive, didn't settle for jump shots or fadeaways and try to shoot threes to show people that he could he could shoot on the perimeter, he became James Wiseman, number one in the nation. Wow, and that's an that's a uh, a true testament to who he is, uh, of his growth, and he still has a higher ceiling, still, mm -hmm. and it's also a testament to the teammates, who saw the potential in him that wasn't going to let him just come in, and look at this name like, oh, we got James Wiseman. They, I'm talking about, it was, 88 bad boy Pistons on him every day, <laughs> from the guards and from the bigs and from the forwards. It yeah. was a no layup rule. It right. was physicality. It was. Yeah, and he needed all of that, and that's what made him the what he where he he already had talent, right. had a high ceiling, but that toughness, that extra toughness that he got from that city public city school, yeah, uh, in the neighborhood really took him to the next level. That's great. So so walk me through what happened with him being suspended and why you know as much as you can say, of course, but but yeah. it seemed like it seemed to me like he was kind of an innocent bystander in this whole thing, but he got the bulk of the punishment. And he got punished for it. That's that's what I saw. But you you explain to me what happened. First of all, you're a former athlete, right. just like I am. Right. Mello, you're Syracuse. Mello gave – he built the practice facility at Syracuse, right? Right. Okay. No, so, say. yeah. So, Mello yeah. built the practice facility at, at Syracuse mm -hmm. out of the kindness of his heart. He won a national right. championship, showing mm -hmm. Syracuse all kind of love. Mm -hmm. If Mello wanted to be the head coach – of Syracuse, because he gave the practice facility, everybody that plays on his LO team, I mean, uh, AAU team, Team Mellow, mm -hmm. is not eligible to go to Syracuse. And why is that? 
So that's the rule. So that's what it was. It was. So I gave a million dollars back to the university to build the coaches, the uh, athletic department offices. Okay. Out of the kindness of my heart. Right. Never had anything else to do with the school. Right. I became a high school coach and it gave to my community. When I became the head coach, excuse me, they said that I was deemed a booster. And oh. when you're a booster, you can't deal with athletes. Wow. And James got caught up in that wash because I helped him and his mom move from Nashville to Memphis when I was a high school coach. And they wow. intertwined all of that together. Wow. And that and that's how he became ineligible. Wow. And, now, and how, hard, so, how hard is that as an athlete where you played the game and the school gave you a scholarship and you say, man, you know what? I'm going to bless the school right. and give them money back. As soon as you do that, if you're not, if you're not, if you're thinking about being a coach, mm -hmm. then you can't be a coach at your alma mater. You got to go to another school. Yeah, that's a terrible rule. That's I mean, horrible. It, it needs to be thrown rule. away, man. And the NCAA, in essence, pushed him out of college because he wanted yes. to play. I mean, he, he wanted did. to play for you. I mean, I, I don't know about necessarily the NCAA or you know Memphis, but he wanted to play for you. And yes, they talk about the the how much he struggled and anguish over that whole situation because a lot of people they don't know they know he got suspended and then you know it was a period of time then he decided you know announced that he was leaving but there was a lot that went in in between that uh with you dealing with him personally and how it personally affected him uh the ncaa ruling that uh he had to be had to suffer man it sent him spiraling downward fast and it mm -hmm. sent him into depression he was really depressed he was not mm -hmm. happy he didn't understand why he was being punished. It was something that was so innocent that God take it, taken advantage of. Um, there's so many ways that I can look at that. Right. And any coach around the country would say from top to bottom, low major, mid-major, high major, that that was the biggest, biggest disappointment ever with a player and a coach. I didn't do anything wrong on a collegiate level right. at all. All I did was give my hard-earned money that I, that I broke bones for back to the university and then went back to help my community. And because it, quote, unquote, looked like I paid James Wiseman to come to Memphis, to go to Memphis, that's unheard of. That's that's wow. that's really, that's what they deemed. It's not what they thought that they knew. It's just what they thought. Like, maybe that's what happened. So we thought that what, what's happened, what's happened, and now we're we're going to penalize them. That's terrible. Do, do you think that the, the, the new rule, Governor um, uh, Gavin Newsom, um, you know, and instituted started off in California. Now, um, universities are going to college students are going to be able to profit off of their likeness, get endorsements and things of that nature. Do you think that helps uh, the NCAA or do you think that hurts? No, it helps because these kids are going to start going to the G League. A lot of these top kids, not every kid, no, every kid can't go. But all the top kids that the college needs to kind of promote what NCAA is all about. You need five star players that who need to be seen on TV, which promotes right. the, the NCAA. The All NCAA right. did themselves a disjustice by not allowing James Wiseman to play because the kid left. Even though it ended up being like the COVID situation and not doing the conference tournament right. and the NCAA tournament, this kid would have had would have been all over ESPN and he would have mm -hmm. been overshadowing anything mm -hmm. that was going on with the NBA because that's right. how that's how ESPN works. And unfortunately for him first and then for the NCAA second that that happened, but the the the, the name, image, and likeness situation is going to help the NCAA because kids are going to want to go to college that aren't ready for the NBA right. and they're going to be able to get paid and, and but, that helps them. 
But I mean, but even from a business standpoint, I mean, I, that that just didn't seem like it was a wise move for the NCAA to make. I mean, they know that that each situation is different, and you know, and I'm not, I don't want to get you in trouble. I don't know how much you can say and they can't say, but it just, it, it it was just unfortunate that he had to be used as an example for a rule that didn't apply here and had different circumstances in the first place. And so I, I just thought that was just unfortunate. And and these type of situations is are causing young people to want to bypass the NCAA completely. You see LaMelo going, you know, overseas. You see um, Darius Baisley, who was supposed to go to Syracuse. He just worked out for a year, basically, and then went in the first round. So you see guys wanting to take different routes. Do you see that becoming more of the norm, or do you see, you know, this this new rule with guys being able to get endorsement and likeness helping kind of curve that, that new wave? What, what, what do you think? I, I think it will curb it some. But most guys just don't want to deal with the NCAA period. You start hearing what happened to James. Right. You see things of that nature. Uh, it scares you. You know, it makes you not want to go. And right. it'll make you sit out a whole year like Darius did. Darius was in Memphis mm-hmm. pretty much that whole year that he sat out, working out down here. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And um, you get guys that will just go and work out or go overseas or they'll still be a top pick mm-hmm. because the, the league wants them. Right. And that will be a shame on the NCAA because every kid to me should – experience college man college is the most fun time of your life before you get to that next level if you're able to go even if it's just for one year mm-hmm. oh no it was a blast i mean i i was i was blessed to you know be in syracuse met my wife you know started my whole you know everything so I, I i loved it but i do see i do see the economic exploitation i do see the you know situations like wiseman that you know I, I think there's definitely a lot that they need to improve on i hope they keep improving for the for the sake of college basketball as a whole um I want, I want to ask you this. I want to switch gears a little bit, okay? Um, you know, coming out of college, you and Chris Weber, uh, you were traded um, draft night, and you wanted to play with Shaq. You yeah. wanted to play with him. Um, Why did you want to play with him so much? And, you know, tell, tell the story of you all getting a relationship on, on the uh, set of blue chips. And, and how yeah. that whole thing happened. Well, first of all, Shaq was so dominant. I knew that if I hooked up with him, that he was going to make my game easier. Uh-huh. And I would make his game easier as well. I feel like the combination would be just so deadly uh, with me being a point guard that understands uh, his game. And uh, by him being double teamed, I knew he was going to get a double team that was going to make my game easier. So um, that was just the first choice for me. I didn't, I did not want to go to Golden State and play with Tim Hardaway or Chris Mullen and those guys. Yeah. It was just I would have rather her play with Shaq uh, because of the big man element. And we were doing the, the advantage that I had. We were doing the movie Blue Chips. Mm-hmm. And Great movie. Great movie, by the thank way. You. Thank you. <laughs> and the Blue Chips movie, they allowed us to play real basketball. It wasn't scripted until the end when I threw the lob to Shaq. So okay. when we played pickup ball, that was actually the movie. Okay. And I didn't shoot the ball one time, not one day in the whole whole summer, trying to let him know this is what's going to happen for you if you get the magic to pick me at the number one, you know, the number one spot. What you and, mean? You, uh, what you mean? You just kept passing to him? Yeah, every time. I never missed him oh. on a roll. I never missed him on a lob. Every time I oh. penetrated, oh, I missed I the ball off to him. <laughs> I overfed him to the point where he was you. like, "I got to I got to have this guy." Oh, got you, got you. So you sold him on it early because I saw yes. I saw a story of Shaq telling where draft night, um, you know, he went to the GM and told him that he wants them to pick you. 
And at yep. first, when they they picked Chris Webber, and I don't think it was nothing against Chris Webber. They're both big men. They're no, both big men. no, Chris right. is great. So, but he wanted, he was thinking, you know, Shaq and Kareem. Like, no, I mean, Kareem and Magic. He was thinking, like, yep. you, you all can be that kind of tangent. And yep. actually, when they picked Chris Webber, he said that he got mad and was like, how can they not pick my man Penny? Like, that happened? Yeah. You know, Shaq can tell happen. a little extra they, story sometimes. So yeah, he that, can. He can. But on that one, he was telling the truth because when, you know, when they picked Chris Webber, I don't think the Magic told him that they were going to trade, how they were going to do the trade. And the only reason why they didn't pick me first is because Philadelphia picked second, and they needed a big man. Oh. So if, if, if Orlando would have picked me first, Philadelphia would have picked Chris Webber, and then Golden State would not have gotten – what they wanted out of the deal, so okay, they did the deal with they did the deal with Orlando, kind of like what Markel Fultz and Jason Tatum did with Boston and Philly. Got you, got you. Uh, Boston picked Markel, Philly picked Jason, and then they flipped it. Okay. It was like the second, and I know how crazy that sounds, but the Philadelphia 76ers really messed the deal up for me going number one overall. Got you. If Golden State would have been second and Orlando would have been first, I would have went number one. Oh wow, wow. So so like so so you get to Orlando, right? And y'all yeah. had immediate success. I mean, y'all had it rolling. Like you was averaging like 21, 7, and 4. Like your first team all NBA. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you you yeah. you was killing. And y'all go to the finals in your second year. Like y'all yeah. really had a good thing rolling. Um yeah. I want to talk about that because y'all beat Michael Jordan and the Bulls, you know, in the 95 playoffs. And not many people can say that they beat Michael Jordan in the Bulls. You know what I mean? Isaiah and them can say it, but, you know, other than that, you know, not many people can say it. Y'all gave them the business in, the, in that series. How, how did that feel being, you know, you know he, he, he was retired and he came back and everything like that, but you all, re you really put on a show and it looked like y'all was just going to take over for the league for the, for the rest of your days. Well, first of all, let me say this. Per Stephen A. Smith, uh -huh. Jordan was 95 years old during that. During that uh, <laughs> oh, you don't want to uh, give y'all props for that? No, no, no. But, it, but I'm going to just say this, because me and MJ are really close. Right. He was not the Michael Jordan from the first three championships as far as in rhythm. He but he rusty. came back and gave the Knicks. He, he wasn't real rusty because it was the end of the season. He was rusty when he first came back. But by the time they played us in the playoffs, he had, he had kind of hit his groove a lot better than what he was when he had first came back. Okay. He came back during season, but right. we didn't play them in the playoffs until two or three months later. Okay. So that's enough time for somebody to get their rhythm. But I can't say he wasn't the MJ that he was the following year in 96. Like, he was not that MJ where okay. he just came back driven. Uh, maybe he thought it was going to be the same uh, easiness that he had left the league with because everything was easy for MJ. Yeah. You know, the competition was high. He was so good. Everything was so easy for him that maybe he thought that was going to be the case. And he ran into a group of young, young bucks that was ready and maybe he just underestimated how good we were because he had never played against us. But at the end of the day, he had gave the Knicks double nickels. I, I remember that. In Garden. I remember that so very well. <laughs> he was still capable of giving you buckets. Uh, yeah. I felt like we had a good game plan. I felt like with the little rust that he did have, it did make a difference. But we played great that series and uh, ended up being a good Bulls team and uh, moving on to the next round and making it to the finals. And even though we got swept, I was still proud of what, what happened with us because that, that that game one pretty much defined the series against us with the Rockets because during the season, we beat them by 20 both times. We had right. so much confidence against them. And then in the, after the first quarter, 
maybe big way second quarter, we were up 14 to 15. And we subbed. And once we subbed, it was like the energy just could, wouldn't sustain. And they went on a run. And by the time we got back into the game, man, it was game. And it went nip and tuck from that point on. And we still had a chance to finish the game off and then finish it off. It went that overtime was, and they beat us in overtime. That was the game where Nick Anderson missed the free throws, right? Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. Y'all we, were up, we were up three. Yeah, y'all definitely had that. And it was it was crazy because y'all had beat Houston. I was, no, no, let me say, y'all had smacked Houston in the, in the regular season that same year, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And so yep. did y'all go into that kind of feeling yourselves a little bit? Like, you know, okay, we got this a little bit. Like, we, we're going to be real after you beat, after you didn't, you didn't, you didn't beat the Celtics, you didn't beat who, then the Bulls the next, Bulls, then Indiana. Pacers. Right, right. So y'all was, y'all, yep. y'all should have, y'all probably high, but did y'all, did y'all go up kind of, kind of feeling yourselves a little bit? We were so confident against the Rockets and we went out in the game in the beginning of the game and show why. And we just didn't finish it. And I can't say, man, I have so much respect for that Rockets team because, yeah. man, they made every shot that they needed to make when we double-teamed Dream. When right. Dream got a one-on-one, -on -one, he made us pay. I right. mean, Robert Ory, Sam Cassell, Kenny Smith, Bernie Maxwell, Mario Elliott. All those guys, man, were such great role players, man. They understood their role, and they knocked down big shots. Yeah. They knocked down big shots, man. That team was really good. And then Otis Thorpe doing the dirty work. Yeah. And then Dream being who he was, man, it was just Woo! Dream. It was tough to overcome that, honestly, man. Once we got down and they gained confidence, it was over. It was so over. so that was that was the that was the, the series where Dream really put on a show. And it was a young Shaq. I'll I'll give yeah. I'll take up for Shaq then. That was that was a young Shaq then, a young, inexperienced, just young and talented Shaq. That wasn't the Lakers Shaq. You know what I mean? But Dream really he put on a show. Like he was like a small forward in a big man's body just spinning all over the place all you know what what was Shaq's reaction after that series like did he talk about it at all like what 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 was he saying he didn't have to say anything I knew I knew Shaq's mindset Shaq was going back to the drawing board mm. after that series even though me and Shaq both had great series mm -hmm. uh we we got swept to a team that we thought that we were better than once momentum when once momentum gets you know this about the league Right. Once momentum hits, it's over. It's like with the Denver Denver Nuggets this year with the Clippers. Clippers right. had them down three one. Once momentum hit, you just knew Denver was going to win that series, and they did. Right. With us, we felt like we were the better team. And once we got down and lost our momentum because we had momentum, mm -hmm. uh, they gained momentum and never looked back. And like I said, man, it just Shaq after that series, I just knew he came back the next year. Like I'm killing everything moving. I'm not. I'm not sparing anybody. Even though he was already that type of player, Dream just taught him, you know, how you have to be when it gets to those levels. And that's what made, I think, that helped Shaq win the three championships that he won. Wow. I want, I want, to, I want to talk about two topics, and these will be the last two topics that I talk about. Um, I, because I relate things to my AAU team, and I'm teaching them lessons, like I said before, all the time, right? And I want to talk yep. about the media's role and kind of pitting you and Shaq against each other during that time. Now, I was a young cat watching this, and I remember Lil Penny came out. Lil Penny was fantastic, too, by the way. That was, yeah, I don't know I who, who thought of that. That was fantastic yeah. with the Chris Rock That's voice. All Nike, and, man. Oh, that was, that was brilliant. But I remember the media kind of, it was like Shaq was hurt for a little while, and you was dominating, like killing every, everybody. And then he came back, and it was like the media just started there. Well, whose team is it? You know, who's going to get the bigger contract? Who's going to – and it seemed like that 
had an effect on y'all. Now, remember, I'm young watching this, but I'm paying attention. And there's one thing in particular I remember a, I don't know if it was a Reebok commercial or something like that. And I saw Shaq, it was almost like a little character of, of Little Penny, and he kind of like bumped it out the way. It was something small like that. And I was like, hmm, what was that? You know what I mean? Like, I, that, that's yeah, a little different. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? So, so, so yeah, I do. I remember the commercial. It was a commercial that uh, that Shaq did, where at the end of it, uh, puppet came out of the back of the uh, the the, the chair, right. and Shaq elbowed it and knocked yeah. it down and went oops, like right. you know, he kind of fed into it on that commercial, which made it a little little worse. But really Shaq and worse. I have always been close, man. People always tried to put us against one another, and I never fed into it. I really never fed into it, honestly because I knew Shaq is where. Our bread was butter. I knew that he was our guy. It was his team, and mm -hmm. I was just going to be a great Robin. He was Batman, and I was Robin. I was never trying to – I knew I could still dominate being who I was. I never had an ego problem. So right. that's why we got along so well. But the media did try to play that up, though. They did. And what is your advice to, to you know your players now? Because the media does that on every team. I mean, they did that with me when I was with the Wizards. I mean, they did that. You see it all. They tried to do it with JaVale and Dwight Howard this year with the Lakers. You know what I mean? And they yep. just try to pit one against each other. What is your advice to young players now when the when the media does that? Not like if they'll do it, when they do it. You got to go to your brother, man. And you got to mm. sit down and talk and make it be genuine. Right. You have to be 100 with your guy at all times, man, because the hardest thing to do is to be on a team with a guy and y'all not like each other, but y'all are the focal point of the team. Right. If you guys aren't getting along, the team would not be good. Mm -hmm. You can't ignore that and still come out on the court and try to play good basketball. You know, I was just looking at John uh, John Wall and Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal was right. like, the media tried to put us against each other, man, but we really they never did. had a problem. Yeah. It was always John and John and Bradley. John and Bradley never liked each other, man. That's really mm -hmm. sad. As long as they talked it out behind closed doors, uh, then that's all that matters. It seemed like Bradley was really, you know, hurt by the deal, mm -hmm. by John leaving because he, he felt like that was his brother, you know, and they've been right. together a while. But when you get into that situation as a young player, man, go to your brother. Don't let your family or your friends tell you not to, not to do it. Go to that guy, man, and talk to him, man, and break the ice or be the bigger person. Even if you feel like he's wrong, be the bigger person and say, man, we need to talk about it. Let's sit down and let's talk about it. And let's, let's smooth all this out so that we can move on and win a championship because ultimately that's what we want to do. That's great advice. That's, and that's great advice that a lot of, you know, players at any level could use. I could have used that when I was with the Wizards. That's just really good advice. Okay, this last topic, you know – and I, this is a topic that I speak to my guys about all the time, and this is dealing with injuries. And there are certain players whose name always come up when you're talking about if they didn't get injured, how good ha could they have been? And your name always comes up in that. You know, one of your, your name could have been in, in one of the greatest of ever. You, Grant Hill, you know, Brandon Roy, there's, there's a few people who always come up. Yep. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I'm, I, I've heard you tell the story of what happened when you got hurt. You you was playing and you uh, Joe Dumars ran into you. He was going for a rebound, mm -hmm. uh, things of that nature. Yep. But afterwards, I want you to talk about how you tried to play through it and how you were taking cortisone shots and how you, you know, you were trying to kind of ignore it. And, and you know, back then it was like, you know, if you could walk, you could play. That was like the mentality back then. Exactly. Right. Now, first, exactly. what would you have done differently if you could go back? 
Well, first, what I would have done differently if I would have sat out like Grant Hill did, even if it would have taken two years just to get my body right. I think if I would have sat out for a year and a half, two years without doing any pounding, I would have gotten back healthy. Mm. My thing was from the era that I was raised in, if you can walk, you can play. Right. And I was out there on the on the court at 60 percent, 70 percent. They would say, well, you at 60 or 70 is better than a lot of guys at 100. So right. you're going to draw attention. You're going to be able to make the right play. Man, it was the most miserable time of my life out there feeling nothing but pain while I was playing. Mm. And I got to a point to where I couldn't – I had already been injured so much that I couldn't take two years to say I got to go away from the game to save my career. I just kept playing injured. And it got to a point in Phoenix where I got a cortisone shot before every game oh, just wow. to be able to make it in the playoffs. Wow. In the playoffs, I got a cortisone. That's not even healthy. No. That's not healthy at all. But I got a cortisone shot before every game in my knee. It's just, wow. it got to that point, man. But, yeah, Joe Dumars ran to the back of my leg. And, man, I never felt the same since. And the last one that hurt me the worst was I went for a layup in the Spurs series when I was in Phoenix. And Samaki Walker knocked me out of the air. And when I fell back, I fell flat with my leg under, under me and tore my meniscus again. And I played throughout that entire series with a torn meniscus, getting oh, the quarter wow. zone shots. And Tim Duncan had a torn meniscus. He sat out. He didn't even play in the series. He just said, I'm just going to save myself. Right. I played, and after that series was over, I ended up getting a microfracture. I was one of the first guys ever in basketball to do the microfracture because that was a new, a new surgery. And that microfracture pretty much ended my career. It just – my legs were too weak after that. My bone structure, dense, everything, it just felt weak and I always felt pain after the surgery. Wow. And once that happened, that was in like 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, man, it was just, it was no good. You know, it's just amazing. And I, and I always, you know, I wanted to, I wanted you to tell the story of this point, because like I said, I'm telling this to my guys all the time to try to reprogram them from that mentality of, you know, playing through, through being injured and pain is weakness, leaving your body, body or whatever foolishness that, that they hear all the time. And I'm just like, no, if you're injured, go sit down, you know? And I, yeah. I I remember seeing, you know, Kevin Durant go back out there. I was like, whoa, what is he doing? Like, I, I remember I'm here in D.C. I remember RG3. RG3 should have never been put back in the game, you know? So, I mean, so yeah. what what is your advice to young players when they're injured, but they have the the pressure of either their team? I mean, I, I watch this show, you know, uh, Surviving Tights. It's like they're the young cats playing football. And you even see their little their little ages trying to put them back out there when they're when they're injured. What would be your advice to young players who they're in that situation, whether they're a high school coach or AAU coach or you know college even college coach or professional coach, or telling them you know that sixty percent of you is still better than you know what I mean, hundred percent of most people. Just give what you can, all of that stuff, and they risk themselves being injured even more. What what is your advice to them? There's definitely a fine line uh, on everything. Uh, I remember, I'll just do this really quickly. One of my mm. favorite players last year was Tariq Owens. Mm. He was at uh, St. John's, and then he ended up transferring as a grad transfer to Texas Tech. They got to the championship game against Virginia. He, he twisted his ankle really badly. Okay. And you could just tell through his sock that that thing looked like a grapefruit. Wow. That was in the Final Four. He played in the championship game on Monday. You know, mm. those type of situations, it's like, man, I got to play. If I can run, I can play. Yeah. I can understand that. You're like, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, yeah. that's that's still tough. 
But man, when you got a, a severe injury uh, to where you can't walk, um, there's nothing you can do about it, but you still try to go out there and play, you're going to damage your career. Right. You're going to damage your career. And the younger they are, the more I'm going to sit them out. Right. Because you, you don't want to damage their muscles. You don't want them tearing their, their tendons and, and ligaments and things of that nature. You don't want that, man. Back in my day, it was soft. It was mm -hmm. considered soft if you didn't stay out there and play. Right. And that's when I tore my meniscus. I didn't even tell the medical staff. I just told them my knee was hurting, but I knew I tore it. Mm. And I knew the pain in it. But I just got a cortisone shot because I had been injured already. And I didn't want people looking at that like, damn, he's injured again. So what I did was I said, if I can get through this playoffs, then I can get to the offseason, have surgery, and be ready for the next training camp. Right. So I played with a torn meniscus that entire Spurs series, and then we played the Lakers. Wow. We played them. We went six games with them. And after that series is when I got the surgery, man. I, I had to play all those games on the torn meniscus because I just didn't want to be considered soft, and I wanted to be there for my team. And that damaged my career. That really went ahead and just kind of – derailed my career now if you got a torn meniscus man you got to sit down you cannot play through that you can't you can't and it was unfortunate and to tell any player you have a, a severe injury if you're hurt you can shake that off oh, i'm hurt coach i can shake it off give me a minute and then i can come back but if you have a severe injury man you can't play through that and, and you i understand why Kawhi leonard was like no the team doctor's saying this but i got my own doctor and he's saying something completely different and guys get their second opinions it's like the movie any given sunday you know what I mean? The team doctor. Can you really trust the team doctor? I mean, you, you, no team doctor should have cleared you to play with a torn meniscus. Nobody. Like, how, how is that even possible? Right. And, and that's it. It shouldn't be up to the player to make that determination. It should be the, the doctor and their ethical practices to be able to say this player should not play. But that's not what happens. So what, what do you tell guys? Do you tell the guys to always get a second opinion? Like what? You know, because they're stuck in that position. It's not as bad in the NBA as it is in the NFL, but still, even in the NBA, guys are stuck in that position, forced to go out there. Like, what? You know what I mean? What? What? What would be your number one advice to them if they're in that situation and they have a, a real injury, like like a torn something, and they're telling them to go out and play? Would you just tell them to get a second opinion and get the medical evidence that shows something well, different first, than the doctor is saying? <laughs> okay, here's the fine line. The mm -hmm. line is okay. We hired this medical group that we know can do the job to get you just as healthy. And plus we can get, we can get information back faster from our guys by you staying here. You go off to get a second opinion. Uh, your, your team doctor might tell you to come back earlier. Hey, he can be back within three to six weeks. Right. Out of town doctor yep. is saying, uh, now nah, it's going to be five to seven, five right. to eight weeks. Right now that's money. That's mm -hmm. costing the team money. But to me, I would allow my players to go and get a second opinion because I would want them to be comfortable to let them know that I'm not trying to rush them back on the court. I, I really care about their well-being. Right. So I think that every team should have a rule. It's not any disrespect to your medical staff. If you have a superstar and they feel like, hey, is it okay for me to go and get a second opinion? You should say yes because right. you're in the well-being of that team. If that doctor out of town says five to eight, but your doctor goes, man, it's really no more than three to six, you can't prove that either way. Because mm -hmm. everybody heals differently. Just because the, the 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 majority has healed this way doesn't mean that this one guy is going to heal that way. Right. And I do believe in second second opinions, even though most most teams hate it, because it makes it look like the medical staff that they hire can't do the job. Mm -hmm. But I think it's deeper than that. I think that you get two opinions, and that makes it better for everybody.
That's great. I, I'm glad that you said that. And this will be the last question. I just want you to tell how much you enjoy coaching and how much joy you get from pouring into young men and teaching them off the court and on the court. Um, you know, you, you did it at the AU level. Now you're being very successful doing it at the college level. Talk about how much you enjoy you enjoy coaching as a whole. You know, honestly, I've been coaching um, as a as a middle school coach. I coached for three years. Mm. As a high school coach, I coached for three years, and now I'm on my third year in coaching in college. So you say I'm on my ninth year, mm. but I've been coaching my whole life. Being a point guard, you're a coach. Mm. From the point guard position, I learned how to coach. I learned right. everything that I needed to learn when I was younger. When I was like seven, eight, nine years old, I wanted to know everybody's position. I wanted to know uh, how to maneuver certain things. I wanted to know how to motivate people. I wanted to know how to encourage people. I wanted to, as the point guard, I wanted to be that guy. So mm. now as a coach, I'm enjoying the same thing that I learned when I was nine, eight, nine, ten years old. I'm wanting to motivate kids. I'm wanting to push them. I wanted to hold them accountable. I want to um, encourage them on and off the court. So I'm loving it, man. Just dumping the knowledge that I have in me back into these kids. Is, it's been a it's been a good joy for me because I, especially when you see it out on the court, whatever you tell them, they listen and they go out and, and display it out on the court and it works. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's a satisfying feeling. That's great. That's great. Well, I have nothing but respect for you. Um, your story, um, you know, show showed my son your documentary uh, once then. I thought that was fantastic. I mean, I just just of who you are, um, not not just of what you accomplished on the court with your you know superstar and everything like that, but I mean, as far as you pouring into kids and pouring into young people and pouring into the city of Memphis and everything that you're doing, I think that's just wonderful. So much respect to you. Thanks again for coming on the show on the rematch and uh much success to you stay blessed and you stay know safe. i appreciate you know i appreciate it my man and, yeah. and same to you man the aau circuit even though you have a son mm -hmm. that's playing but just for you to touch those kids lives mm -hmm. man kudos to you because that's what we have to do when we get done we have to get back and i definitely. appreciate it definitely that's what's up that's what's up all right well stay safe and good luck to you this season all right same to you all right all right thanks bro. same to you thank you for listening to the rematch you can find more episodes on basketballnews.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find my articles on basketballnews.com, along with exclusive content from Kenyon Martin, Vinny Del Negro, James Posey, and more. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at AtonThomas36. Let me know what you thought of this episode and who you'd like to see as a guest. I would love your feedback.